0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Tomorrow morning, students across Colorado and the country plan to walk out of school for 17 minutes, a tribute to the 17 people killed last month in a Florida school shooting. At Golden High School in Jefferson County, senior Emmy Adams is leading the charge.
1: We care about... Walking into school and not being terrified for our lives whenever we hear a fire alarm or whenever we hear our security guards walking around being terrified that it's going to be us next.
0: The same group behind the Women's March is orchestrating the National School Walkout, imploring Congress to, quote, pass federal gun reform legislation that addresses the public health crisis of gun violence. After the Florida shooting, Adams decided to join the national campaign and organize a walkout of her own.
1: Just like reading some of the stories about these victims, they sounded like carbon copies of kids who I have grown up with, who I've gone to kindergarten with. And it just was insane for me to realize that a school in a community much like mine, that this could happen.
0: She's not only organizing the walkout, but a district-wide rally tomorrow night as well. We caught up with Adams at Golden High School last Friday. She was meeting with a dozen students from several Jeffco high schools to talk through plans.
1: So thank you guys for like giving up your Friday. Um, I know we still have a lot of schools who aren't here, but it's also, as much as our generation's awesome, it's also a Friday and your high school, so.
0: Senior Kaylee that. Kaufman showed up. She says it's time for students to speak up about school shootings.
1: I think a lot of people before us were just convinced that it would eventually go away. And I think we're out here knowing that it's not going to change unless we make the change. And I think Parkland was sort of the catalyst for this underlying brewing emotion.
0: Most of the students at the meeting said school administrators have been supportive, but hands off, they're not taking sides. As these students discussed their plans, they acknowledged not all of their peers agree with them, some think walking out for 17 minutes won't do anything, while others don't think stricter gun laws are the answer. But Marshall Mars, a senior at Ralston High School in Arvada, says what they're doing tomorrow goes beyond politics. We can come out with as many facts, we can say as many statistics, the, this many people support it, but
2: at the end of the day, it's an emotional argument. It's about our communities, it's about our families, it's about our friends, it's about our schools, it's about our churches.
0: All right, let's hear more about the walkout from a student who will take part and one who will not. We're also curious how young people come to their views on guns. Paul Gordon is a junior at Arapahoe High School in Littleton, where he's organizing a walkout. And Enzo Perry is a sophomore at Golden High School. He'll be staying put. And gentlemen, welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Paul, the walkouts come a month after the shootings at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida. What will the event look like at Arapahoe High School?
3: So at 10 a.m., uh, the students will collectively stand up out of their classrooms. It'll be uh, at the end of second period and walk out of the room and congregate at an outdoor classroom uh, on I want to say I I don't know which side of the school it's on. It's okay, but um, and congregate in the outdoor classroom, and uh, there's going to be some organized speakers, um, and you know people are making signs and whatnot, and uh, we're going to make our voices heard. So as are students. you are
0: you losing class time as a result? Yes. of
3: this? Uh, yes, okay. very little class time, in my opinion. It'll be I think. There's a five-minute passing period within the 17 minutes, so it'll be about 12 minutes worth of class time.
0: Okay. Um, Are you planning for some kind of security? Yeah. So
3: uh, we're fortunate enough, uh, LPS is providing uh, security for us, as well as uh, we actually had to move the location to a place that's not on the corner of two roads, just in case people on the road wanted to do something, you know, um, inappropriate. Okay.
0: LPS Littleton Public Schools. Yes. Littleton Mm.
3: Public Schools and uh, and the Arapahoe County Sheriff's Department as well.
0: Uh, you said there will be speakers. who Who are you lining up? What message do you think they'll impart? So
3: we're uh, we're trying to get a variety of speakers. Uh, we we ha- we have them uh, lined up, and we have it's all students. Um, we wanted to bring in legislators, but um, no no one who's actually not a student at Rapo High School is going to be allowed on campus at that time. Huh. So uh, it's all students. Uh, I'm I'm actually one of the speakers, as well as um just some of the fellow people who are passionate about the issue.
0: What do you plan to say?
3: Um, myself, I'm going to talk about uh, gun control from a ideological standpoint uh, using um, just just talking about the mentality and uh, the more, um, like I said, ideological side of the argument. Yeah. What do you mean
0: by that? I'm not clear.
3: So um kind of just talking as far as I feel like there's a lot of when it comes to gun control, there's a lot of sharp talking points. And I, I'm just going to talk about those and, you know, how, how I view them and ones that I agree on, ones that
0: I don't. I want to say that it's a fairly unusual position the students at Arapahoe are in, because in 2013, there was a shooting at that high school, and a student named Claire Davis died there. Uh, that is before you got there, Paul, but we'll talk about how that event may be shaping the walkout in, mm-hmm. in just a few minutes. But uh, Enzo, why are you against the walkout?
2: Um, so I believe that once we give once we do walk out, then that's precious time that we're not getting in class. And I have ditched class before. Slap me on the wrist. but um, That's so nice of you <laughs> to be transparent with us. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I just kind of think that just walking out for 17 minutes, like my thoughts and prayers do go out to the family of those that have lost their loved ones. But I feel like doing 17 minutes isn't going to do anything.
0: Uh, I think there are some who will hear you say thoughts and prayers and say those don't do anything either. Maybe walking out and and making a political statement would. Uh, Why don't you think it would?
2: Um, I just don't think I think the legislators are going to see it as just a bunch of students wanting to get out of class for 17 minutes. Mm, You don't think they
0: necessarily take that as a serious political statement? Yes. That is a disguise for ditching? Kind of, yes. So what will you do? Uh, paint a picture of what it'll look like. You'll you'll stay seated in the class? Do, do you know how
2: it will go down? Um, I'm imagining everyone else will get up in the class, and I'll be sitting there in my desk, probably working on some homework for the next class.
0: Ah. Uh, do you think you're the only one in your class who won't stand I
2: believe I'm going to be the only one that's not going to stand up. It's
0: an interesting position to be in. Have you had conversations with your classmates about that? I have not. Hmm. I wonder if you have any questions for Enzo about that, Paul.
3: Um, Well, uh, Enzo, my my first question would be is, um, why do you think that it won't do anything? I I was having a conversation with my dad uh, last night, actually, about this very topic. And uh, we we got on the topic of the civil rights movement. And not that I want to make any comparison to, you know, students walking out of class versus the civil versus uh, the civil rights movement. Um, I, you know, obviously, two very different things. However, uh, he he made a very compelling statement that said, "If someone had told me that one lady sitting down on a bus would make a difference in the '60s, I would have laughed." But it did. So referring obviously to Rosa Parks. Yes, okay. Yes. Uh, re- referring to Rosa Parks. So why? What? Why are you uh, kind of quick to make the assumption that this isn't going to do anything for anybody?
2: Um, I can just I don't know. I believe that we're just all a bunch of kids not to be like undermining to the other students, but um, we're just a bunch of kids that really don't have quite as much of a voice in the political system.
0: Well, uh, that's an interesting point. I I wonder, uh, because part of this, this action is also about getting young people involved in politics more broadly. So getting them registered to vote, for instance, and maybe even running for office. Are those things, I wonder if you're uh both thinking about these days and so um i have considered running for an office
2: um right now i'm a student council representative for the sophomore class
0: okay and uh not 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 old enough to vote yet correct no sir yeah that comes up soon
3: and paul um so i'm planning to run for you know an actual government office uh, at some point in my future uh, hopefully once i get out of college uh as well as that um, I'm running for student council president uh, in the, at the end of this year. So.
0: And so I wonder if you have any questions for, for Paul. Uh, not yet. Not yet. Okay. We'll keep exploring uh, together then. So I'd like to go back to the issue of guns because that sounds important to you, Paul, as part of this walkout. Uh, what exactly do you want to achieve? What, what changes do you want in the law?
3: So the the official walkout uh, position is um, one disarmament or allowing judges to disarm people who have behavioral issues, two banning bump stocks, and three a ban on military grade assault weapons. So, I one of the cool things about the walkout is that you don't necessarily have to walk out for all the same reasons. Mm. In fact, there are a couple of those points that I I'm I kind of have hes- hesitancies about. You know, for example, the whole like ban assault weapons quote exact verbiage. I, I don't know who gets to define assault weapons. I don't know how slippery of a slope that would be, um, and and I think that that'd be something that you know we definitely have to look at a lot closer rather than just you know jumping on a jumping on a, uh, jumping on this train of emotion that obviously comes out of a mass shooting.
0: So, what issue would you say you are? Uh, walking out for what? What can you get behind?
3: So I, I, I am definitely in support of stronger gun legislation, but to me, it would more look like, um, at the most basic level, having a national registry for the guns that are available in the United States.
0: Okay, which uh, is obviously going to concern yes. uh, some gun owners, and and so I'd like your perspective on this. How much of your decision to stay seated has to do with your perception of guns and gun control? Um, I believe that.
2: Evil people are very resourceful. So, say you make bump stocks illegal, then they just modify how fast their gun fires. So, once you put up a wall, it's they'll still go around it, because they're evil people. It's like holding up a sign that says, do not bite to a rabid dog. It's not
0: going to help at all. Your belief is that it's not the guns, it's the user of the guns. Yes, sir. And yet, if you made guns that kill lots of people quickly, harder to get, might that have some effect? Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah, I believe. Yes,
2: I believe so. Um, I think that if you can postpone that and even have like a board that you have to like go in front of in order to get a gun, then anywhere in that process, if they're seeing that you have behavioral issues or anger issues, they can be like, I don't believe that you're suitable for a weapon.
0: Interesting. Do I hear some common ground between you two for on sure. the idea of... Maybe those who have a sort of record of mental Mm -hmm. illness or instability or a period of maybe intense uh, mental decline that perhaps there should be a way to get a gun restraining order type thing. Yeah, Yeah. I could see that. How did you come to your views on guns? And so I wonder if you have used guns in your young life and Um, and how that is. So
2: my dad's a police officer and um, I've pretty much grown up around guns. And we used to watch a video with Eddie the Eagle, um, old VHS tape. He's like the Smokey the Bear of gun safety? He is, yes. Um, He used to say, stop, don't touch, leave the area, tell an adult if you ever saw a weapon. Um, And I don't know, that just grew up shooting and just kind of fell in love with the guns, yeah. And do you have conversations of this
0: nature with, I wonder, with your parents, perhaps?
2: I do, yes. Um... We'll talk about it, and my dad tells me that guns are tools and not weapons. And like anything, a weapon can be turned into a tool, and a tool can be turned into a weapon.
0: You also want to be in the military, I understand. Yes, sir. Uh, Perhaps a para-jumper. Yes, sir. And you, Paul, are looking towards a career in politics. If that's the case, there's no doubt that that the issue of guns may continue to persist in your life. Mm -hmm. How do you think you came to your view of guns? Have you ever used a gun?
3: Yes, uh, I've actually, I've gone uh, gun shooting a few times. They're they're tons of fun. Uh, I have have, um, an endless, or not an endless understanding, but I, I have a... I have a great respect for, for that aspect of it. I, I love shooting guns. It's super fun. Um, the difference is, you know, I'm obviously like I'm out of range and I'm, it's a very controlled environment, but I, I, I love it. Um, I came to my views on guns just through my own reflections and conversations with my peers who both um, agreed with me and disagreed with me. I actually used to be um, super um, – you know, I, I used to be way more on Enzo's side of the argument. And then, you know, over through having conversations and such – Um, just with my peers and with my parents and with, with, uh, with everybody around me, I just decided to change my mind.
0: How did the shooting at the high school you now attend, you were in middle school back Mm -hmm. then, how did that shape your view at all?
3: So it, the biggest thing was that it it made it feel real to me. It's very easy to see something on the news and kind of dismiss it. But, um, both that shooting, um, the Aurora theater shooting, um, And, you know, learning about the Columbine shooting in school, all three of those kind of brought an image together of, oh, wow, this place that I've been going to since I was, you know, a very young child might not be 100% safe. And that was the first
2: time I ever felt that.
0: Hmm. And so do you feel safe these days? What does it feel like to sit in a classroom for you?
2: Um, Yes, I feel safe sometimes. But then other times you go into a classroom and you look at it and you go, okay, so there's a door there. There's a window there. If something goes down, there's the corner that you can go in where there's not a view of you.
0: You're, like, mapping this out. Mm-hmm. Yes,
2: you map that out in your brain. And sure. I think that's a part of our lives now, you know, to just
0: to be ready for anything and be prepared. What would you suggest to get school shootings under wraps, if not gun control, and so?
2: I would say um, armor our schools, armor the security guards. Um, but I don't believe that we should arm the teachers.
0: You don't believe, yes, in arming teachers. That's been the subject of some discussion, Paul. What, what's your thought on that?
3: Um, I, I, I do believe that the that the answer is gun control. I'd just like to restate that. Um, not the only answer, obviously, but that is one of the one of the main answers. I, I have a question for you. Um, at, at Parkland, there was an armed, trained security guard on campus who stood outside. So, yes. how, how can we ensure that that doesn't happen if we do? armed have placed armed guards in our school um
2: and that's when the part of human nature kicks in and there's no saying what that person will do but if the proper amount of training and abling these almost shepherds of us um would help us and protect us a little bit more
3: and then sorry can i ask one more question
2: sure uh Uh, just briefly and then we'll wrap up
3: yeah for sure um where, where does this, where will the money come from your school district to arm and train security guards and whatnot in this school?
2: That's a good point. Um, we could apply for grants because um, there's tons of grants out there. I went to a um, meeting where we actually – they gave out grants, and I saw they gave out like $33,000 worth of grants. Um, but – that is to say, you'd
0: think there'd have to be some outside support for that. There would be happy, yes. Well, just as we get warmed up, look at this, we're going to have to wrap up. And <laughs> I'm really grateful for your views on this. I think we could probably talk about this for a very long time, the three of us. Thanks yeah. for being with us. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Nice to meet both of you. Paul Gordon, a junior at Arapahoe High School in Littleton. He's organizing tomorrow's planned walkout there. Enzo Perry is a sophomore at Golden High School. He will... Uh, not walk out. He's against the events happening tomorrow. When we come back, solving a mystery illness that struck children. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The story now of a mystery illness that took years to solve. Maybe you remember news reports like this from 2014. Well, you may have heard about an illness that's going around similar to a severe cold, and it's targeting children. Well, now another medical mystery. Doctors are trying to figure out why a group of Colorado children are showing polio-like symptoms, including paralysis. Are the two linked? Colorado was an epicenter. There was a cluster of patients here, including Lydia Pilarowski of Denver. She was five then. For her, it started with a fever, then a cough, then severe weakness in her arm. She had trouble playing piano. Now, four years later, University of Colorado researchers, along with colleagues, around the world say they've identified the likely cause. So I'm joined by Dr. Kevin Messachar, as well as Lydia Pilarowski and her mother, Sarah, who incidentally is a pediatrician. Welcome to all three of you. Lydia, you're nine now. Do I have that right? Yes. What do you remember from that time?
4: Well, I remember that my mom was um, reading a book to me, but I really don't remember a lot Actually, um, because I was so little then.
0: You were so little then. You remember her reading a book to you. Why does that stand out?
4: I don't know. I guess it was just one of those things you remember.
0: One of those things you remember. Well, take us to that scene, Sarah. What do you remember from this time?
5: Well, it was an exceedingly stressful time, really. Um, You know, she'd started out with a fever, and... Um, What I really remember initially from all of this is that she was just laying in bed not moving and she would talk to me and respond to me so I thought well you can't be be that sick but the fever just kept going on and on and then she would have these these screaming fits that we couldn't even explain Um, and she couldn't explain she would just start screaming out of nowhere and it would last for several minutes. Um, and she seemed to be in pain, but couldn't couldn't tell us what was hurting, what oh was bothering her. Yeah.
0: Does that stand out at all for you, Lydia? The, the, the screaming in pain.
5: I vaguely remember a few screaming episodes, but mm-hmm. not really.
0: How did it affect her daily life?
5: Well, you know, at, at that time, I mean, she was um, as, as a young child. Initially, she was sick. She was down. Um, it was when she started to seemingly get better, and we figured out that there was something more going on, um, and that's when things really started to affect, and it was hard because she was starting starting school. And you're in this mode, you know, so we've got to get you into school. We've got to get you going for the school year, but yet you're so sick, we can hardly get you up and out the door in the morning to get you to school. I mean, and you,
0: w- you wrote an article about your experience mm-hmm. in the Huffington I did. Post. I did. This was in 2016. And uh, you said Lydia had polio, just not caused by the polio virus. Explain yeah. Explain what you mean there.
5: Well, as we were going through all of the workup to try to figure out why suddenly she couldn't use her left arm, um, it started coming across in the doctors we were talking to and the testing that was being done that everything was acting like a polio-like illness. In fact, it got to the point where they said to me, okay, we know you're a pediatrician. But is your daughter vaccinated for polio? And that's when it really struck me, It's like, wow, we we really are dealing with with polio. Something it's essentially serious. acting like polio, just not caused by that virus because she'd been vaccinated. She'd for been that. vaccinated. She'd been vaccinated. For that. Mm-hmm. Well,
0: Doctor Kevin Messekar, you're an infectious disease expert at Children's Hospital, Colorado. Remind us how widespread this was. I mean this first emerged in twenty fourteen and then there was another wave in twenty sixteen, right?
6: Correct. In 2014, it was a really unusual year. We, during a very quiet period, typically before flu, before the respiratory viruses of the winter, started seeing kids come in coughing with shortness of breath. And we were very, very busy. And we learned that sites in Kansas City and Chicago were seeing this new respiratory virus, enterovirus D68, and learned that it indeed was circulating in Colorado at the time. And an
0: enterovirus, I mean, that's fairly common, right? And, and it's a respiratory thing.
6: Yeah, so enteroviruses are very common. This particular virus has been described all the way back to the 1960s, but is newly circulating again in wide numbers. So there was a large outbreak in 2014 mostly respiratory disease, but that's when we started in Colorado noticing kids presenting with really unusual symptoms of weakness in the arms, the legs,
0: the face, and the throat. Uh, And uh, what were the numbers? I mean, can you give us some sense of the scale?
6: So, in Colorado here, we saw 13 kids within the state that had paralyzed arms or legs, but then once we put out a health alert throughout the state of Colorado and eventually through the CDC throughout the country, there were over 120 cases described in 2014. Then it went away in 2015 and came back uh, with over 149 cases throughout the country in 2016. So you and your
0: uh, colleagues began looking for the cause and in layman's terms, how did you figure out what was behind this and linking it to a respiratory illness, which, you know, those seem like two very different things.
6: So our initial
0: suspicion was
6: that this widespread respiratory outbreak was happening with this newly emerging virus at the same time as this unusual neurologic illness with paralysis. And we thought those two could be linked. Um, But it's taken us years since then to put together the pieces of the puzzle to really show that this is the likely cause. And the reason is when we did spinal taps or collected spinal fluid on these patients, we didn't find the virus. And that would be a clincher that would definitively prove that that's what's doing this. Okay. And what we found instead is that this virus is found like a cold in the back of the nose. And so we had to put together the pieces of the puzzle to say that this virus is doing this not only in Colorado but throughout the country and now throughout the world. We've actually moved the virus into the lab. So at, at University of Colorado, Dr. Ken Tyler and Allison Hickson have been able to replicate this in the lab. Interesting. Um, and we've also been able to set up a global network of, of people looking for this and describing it elsewhere.
0: So the weakness is associated with something called acute flaccid myelitis. Do I have that right? Correct.
6: Yes. So acute flaccid myelitis is the illness uh, describing when a child has weakness in the arms or the legs and very definitive pattern in the spinal cord when we do imaging.
0: So how how does this help going forward? Having identified, you're not certain, right? It's not 100% certainty, but being... Fairly confident that you've identified the cause of this. So, being more confident about the cause allows us to progress the
6: research in terms of uh, coming up with better treatments and eventual prevention strategies. We've set up improved surveillance so that we know if this comes back, both in the U.S. and throughout the world. Um, This is an emerging illness. We don't know if and when it's going to come back,
0: but if it does, we want to be as prepared as we can. Okay, so it's not that you can say we've identified it, now we have a cure for it uh, by any means. No, but we're working towards that. There was just so much unknown about this. What was that like as a mom, Sarah?
5: It was terrifying. Um, When you're looking at your child and you realize that she doesn't have full use of her arm, and this is being caused by something that we're not really 100% certain what it is, that meant we didn't know what the future would hold and really does hold at this point in time. And um, it, it, it was just, it was overwhelming. It was absolutely overwhelming. Yeah,
0: so let's talk about how this progressed mm-hmm. over the the months and, frankly, the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it, d- does this remain a presence in your life?
5: Yes, it does. How so? Um, well, Lydia is doing wonderfully. Yeah, Lydia,
0: tell me about your left arm, will you?
4: Well, I can't do some things like cartwheels and handstands, and that's always been a challenge for me because every year in gym class we'll do a thing for about two weeks where we do gymnastics, and so a lot of those things I just can't do, so I just kind of step back and do something else. And
0: had you been able to do those kinds of things before this?
4: When I was little, I took a gymnastics class, and... I don't really remember how much I could do, but I definitely know I was better at doing some things like cartwheels and handstands.
0: Mm-hmm. How does it feel to sit out those things?
4: Sometimes I kind of wish that, that none of this ever happened, but you can't ever change the past. Hmm.
0: Profound words there. What has been the course of treatment? Do kids get better? And I'll have you answer that for your own daughter, Sarah, and then Dr. Mesekar for children in general.
5: Well we did we have seen improvement. Um so Lydia did go from you know kind of not being able to really raise her arm very high to she can with you know, kinda of get it up high. She just can't she can't hold things, she can't um do certain movements um sort of against gravity with her arm. Um but she has found ways to work around the persistent weakness um, that she has in her arm, which has been fabulous to see. And, um, it, you know, she she has embraced different sports. So instead of being a gymnast, she's become a skier and um, skis competitively. So it, it's one of those things where it is kind of always a part of our life, but we've kind of moved beyond it.
0: Dr. Mesikar, how have other children fa- fared? It's
6: been incredible to see the spirit and the dedication of of the children in terms of working to improve their strength. And um, like with Lydia, most of our children have improved in what they can do, although they have been left with weakness in the muscles that are paralyzed from the spinal cord. And so, in most of our kids, this does look like it leads to long term weakness or even permanent weakness. Although with uh, strength and dedication—they really have worked to to improve the surrounding areas.
0: Anything you tell parents who hear this and think, "Well, gosh, I don't, I don't want my child to contract this." So, fortunately,
6: at, at this point, this is a very rare condition. So, we know the virus is very common, but this neurologic presentation with paralysis is, is very rare. Got it. Um, similar to Lydia, if you'd notice your child has weakness in the arms, the legs, and the face, it's something to see your doctor about. We're trying to create awareness amongst doctors of this new condition. And we're really working to create better treatment and prevention protocols for this. So, uh, we're, we're doing our best to learn as much as we can and uh, to do better in the the future if this does
0: come back. All right. We heard from nine-year-old Lydia Pilarowski, her mother Sarah, and Dr. Kevin Mesekar from Children's Hospital Colorado. Lydia had come down with a polio-like illness in 2014, which Dr. Messachar and his colleagues have now identified. Their research is published in The Lancet Infectious Diseases. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. <laughs> It's sometimes hard to believe the stories you hear about wars in other countries until you see them up close. Chris Hondros helped millions of people see what modern wars in Africa and the Middle East have done to the people who live there. Hondros is the name of a new film about his life made by his childhood friend, a fellow journalist named Greg Campbell, who lives in Denver. The film's out now on iTunes and Amazon. I spoke with Campbell a couple of months ago during Sundance.
7: Greg, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here.
0: The film is so many things at once. It's about what it takes to be a war photographer. It's also really about the wars themselves. Why did you decide not to make a traditional biopic, but focus so much on the people and places that Chris
7: documented? Chris, for those of us who knew him well you know he didn't really put himself in the limelight he was not the kind of sort of stereotypical person you would think of who would come back and then regale all of his friends and listeners nearby with war stories at the end of a bar stool he really focused on putting the people who were impacted by the events that he covered front and center his sort of overriding mission was to Find the humanity that sort of com- that connected the people that, that he saw who were suffering through the events uh, that he was covering with the people that were going to be seeing the images uh, back home. I love the way you started this film out.
0: Uh, a bunch of guns are going off. Chris is ducking around, trying to stay out of the way, click, click, clicking with his camera, and his cell phone rings. Hello, Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello, Chris.
3: Uh, okay. Things are fine. Things are fine. Uh, let, me, let me give me a
0: call back in about half an hour. Things are fine. Things are fine. Let me give you a call back in a half an hour. He says. I mean, that calm under pressure. Was that just a
7: normal situation for Chris Hondros to be caught in the crossfire, trying to do his job? Absolutely. You know, when when we dug that little clip out of, I think it was nine and a half hours of uh, harrowing footage from the war in Liberia in two thousand and three. I knew immediately that that is where we were going to start the film, because that really speaks to who he was. Anybody who's been in a tense situation with him in the field will be the first to tell you that Chris just had this otherworldly ability to just really focus on on the task at hand.
0: Yeah, and it often meant that he was incredibly close to the pictures that he took. We'll talk more about that in a bit, but you've known him you
7: since childhood, Was it always obvious that he'd end up in a line of work like this? I think so. Chris and I met when we were 14 years old in English class in Fayetteville, North Carolina in high school. And, you know, we we fell into stride really quickly with one another because I think we just shared sort of an innate curiosity about the world beyond the confines of our small town where we met and grew up. And in college, we quickly gravitated towards journalism. I was a print reporter. He um, specialized, obviously, in photography. And, you know, when when you're first getting into uh, a career like journalism, there's there's the internship route where you, you know, you write the obituaries and you shoot the high school football games. And then there's picking up and selling everything and going off to a war zone that kind of catapults you to into a whole nother realm of, of journalism. And Chris and I took that step in our in our uh, late 20s uh, in covering the wars in the Balkans. And it was Bosnia and Kosovo at first. And I think when Chris saw what he was capable of doing as a photojournalist in those situations, then he, he never looked back.
0: You sold everything and just jumped into this life.
7: I didn't. I, uh, I was actually working, believe it or not, at the Boulder Weekly up and give uh, a little shout out to the guys up in Boulder. Um, when I first made my first foreign reporting trip and it was to bosnia in 1996 and uh so i was you know it was me and the wall street journal and the new york times and the boulder weekly running around uh with the reunification of sarajevo in 1996 and when i reported back to chris about the experience and you know the uh, sort of that satisfaction of the curiosity that we both kind of shared he was immediately like well you know the next conflict that comes up i'm i'm gonna be there
0: it is obvious early on in the film, and so I'm not, I'm not spoiling it here, that Chris Andros died. Uh, in 2011, he was working in Libya during the Arab Spring and got caught up in a fight between Gaddafi's forces and the rebels. You were in Libya on that trip reporting together for the first time, I think, in several years, and you went home before him. What was the story you wanted to get from Libya?
7: Libya was the latest in uh, af- of several sort of Arab Spring uprisings, and it was the one that devolved um, first into a, into a really brutal civil war. And it had
0: been a really closed society in many
7: ways. Yeah, not a lot of people knew about what it was like inside Libya, and the Gaddafi regime had been in power for 40-plus years, and to see it crumbling was clearly a story that he was going to cover.
0: How did you find out that Chris Krasnodar had died?
7: I'd come back, as you said, uh, about a week before his death. And um, I'd emailed with him that morning just to check in on him because he was going into a city that was surrounded on all sides by Gaddafi forces. It was under siege. It was the city of Misrata. His reply was that this was where the story was, you know, the civilians, the people that he really cared about covering. And so he and a small group of other journalists who'd arrived on the boat a a few days before were uh, sending out some harrowing uh, imagery and I, after I'd, I'd emailed him this one particular morning on April, April 20th, uh, 2011, I got a Twitter alert that basically said that he, he had died alongside uh, Tim Hetherington, who was a British filmmaker. And that's obviously a really cold splash of water. You know, it's a real slap in the face to get from something as anonymous as Twitter. So that just kind of took over, obviously, my day from that point where I was trying to confirm this unconfirmed report. Had he at all considered not going to the
0: Arab Spring? Like, do you know if that thought ever, had ever entered his mind or that was just what he was destined to do?
7: You know, I mean, interestingly, he, he was uh, going to be married in a, in a few months from the time of his death. And he had uh, he had big plans on the horizon, but he wasn't the first photojournalist from the Getty News Agency uh, to go in. And he was not going to be much longer in, in the country. I believe he was aiming to come back a, approximately a week after the incident that killed him. Um, but yeah, he you know spent his entire career specializing in the work that he did, so there was no question that he was gonna he was gonna go cover that. And yet, you
0: do get the sense in this film that he he had a thirst for a, a little bit of a different life, maybe in the second chapter, a life. Uh, with a a little bit more domesticity, perhaps. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm speaking with Denver filmmaker Greg Campbell about his new film, Hondros. It is about his lifelong friend, the war photographer, Chris Hondros, who died in 2011. And I I want to hear from Chris Hondros himself in the film, describing uh, the, the kind of photographer that he was.
7: The problem with war photography is that there's absolutely no way to do it from a distance. You have to be close. You can't you can't do it from your hotel, you can't do it from across the street, across the bridge. You have to be there. It's really no substitute for that. So you have to figure out ways to get in the midst of things, no matter what's happening, and you have to suspend your reason sometimes to do that. And I think that's where that reputation comes from. His
0: reputation.
7: (laughs) Yeah, right off the bat, you know, we wanted that's very early in the film. um, And he's asked a question by the interviewer um, about the reputation that conflict photographers have for being the craziest amongst all the journalists who cover conflict. And, uh, you know, one of the things I'm glad you picked that clip, because that was that was Chris answering the question That I think a lot of people bring up when they consider this film or when they've just seen it is, you know, um, a lot of people say this wasn't what I was expecting, you know, from this film. In other words, I think they were expecting uh, Chris himself to be almost like a reckless kind of cowboy because that's what they have. That's the vision that people have of you know war photographers in their head. And although he clearly took, you know, very many risks in order to come back with the stunning imagery that he did. Uh, you wouldn't ever know it talking to him. And it's, again, that sort of like that calm under fire that, you know, he, he truly understood that in order to do the job as well as he needed to and do the job that he, he was called to do, you have to put yourself in certain situations. He seemed to have a knack for knowing where the next pivot point would
0: be in a conflict or where the next conflict might even arise um, right after the nine eleven attacks he tells his editor at getty i 'm headed to Pakistan years later, of course, that would be pivotal in in finding Osama bin Laden. He was in Pakistan, and his editor said he always was one step ahead,
7: yeah, and I mean again, that just sort of speaks to who he is um, you know as a, he, he was he was extraordinarily intelligent um, and I think You know, the journalist part of photojournalist often gets overlooked about how important it is to do your research, to know where you're going. Again, early in the film, one of his editors says, you know, you never had to explain to Chris why he was where he was. He always kind of knew the importance of the story. He knew what he wanted his photography to be about. And that, that sort of preparation, that knowledge, I think, really puts him in a position to know when something is happening in front of him that this is going to be the picture over here that's going to tell the story, this little slice of it. Maybe not all this, you know, noise and chaos that's going on over over here, but yeah, this little slice of it is going to tell the story that is going to resonate with the people. Well, speaking of this, this little slice of a conflict, I mean, I, I can't help but think of
0: his iconic photo. Uh, it's of an Iraqi girl whose family has just been killed by U.S. forces at a checkpoint. And the photo is devastating. The girl's hands and face are bloody. She's screaming in agony. And next to her, you just see the boots and guns of a U.S. soldier. And yet later, Chris also managed to tell the other side of the story. I want to say that. Uh, But this photo is just incredibly
7: searing. I mean, it's a jaw-dropping photograph that when it was released on the wire, Against the wishes uh, of the U.S. military, I should actually say, it was used around the world and it caused an immediate uproar. And one of the things that I learned from doing this film and taking a really deep dive into Chris's body of work is that he always focused on young children. They were the ones in sharp focus. And there is usually an anonymous military figure standing in the foreground or in the background. And the expressions that were caught on children's faces just really spoke to a generation caught up in war, growing up in this uncertainty, this militaristic uncertainty. And it naturally makes the the viewer of the photograph ask, what will become of that child? You know? That's right. That's right. It was a real, you know, humanistic way of, of covering conflict. And I think when he was um, presented with that devastating instant in Talifar, Iraq, in 2005. That's what gave him the ability, to, because he, he, he knew what he was doing. He practiced it. It was a skill that he had perfected. And that might make you think, well, gosh, if he's
0: only training his lens on, on children, he's not telling the whole story, right? What about the soldiers? And he
7: was able to tell the story of the soldiers involved in that conflict. How did he do that? He always wanted to... Um, connect with people on all sides, you know, and again, as, as a journalist, sort of like taking that kind of high level, you know, objective approach to the things that he saw. He was there with the soldiers during that incident. Right. He was the an embed. He was in an embed and the soldiers fired on the vehicle in which the parents were killed because they assumed that it was going to explode and kill them. They thought they were under attack. And later, Chris said that he too thought the car was going to explode. So this... Incident really paints kind of like um, uh, a montage of just how many different shades of gray there are. And when Chris connected again with one of the soldiers, it was during uh, a story that he was doing about post-traumatic stress. And, you know, the soldier that we highlighted in the film who was involved in firing on the car Actually lives here in Denver. You know, from from there, the story just you could you could see the the various nuances of the story. You get kind of all different perspectives that the soldier is
0: very disturbed. You can tell by the incident in Iraq, and he he's even wondering whether his bullet was the fatal one that that killed him, any number of the members of the families, um, and that that haunts him. Uh, you interviewed Chris Hondros' his mother for the film. She grew up in Germany, I, I think, during World War II. Yeah.
7: How do you think that influenced his career choice?
0: I mean, was he was he fascinated
7: by war? I wouldn't say fascinated. I would say that he grew up um, from an early age, knowing what the true impacts were, you know, that there was a real human cost to war. I think a lot of us, I'm speaking for myself as well, you know, we grew up with a Hollywood version of what war is like. And... Chris's mother, from an early age, uh, would tell him stories of her experiences. Um, she made it pretty clear to him that there was a, a human a human cost to it that's that's very very tangible. And I believe that his mom knew, having known knowing what the cost of war is, as as sort of uh, directly as his mom did, uh, she was able to understand his motivations better and better than maybe other people's parents who go cover those type of things.
1: Hmm.
0: We are talking about the late war photographer, Chris Hondras, with his very good friend, Greg Campbell of Denver, who's made a film about him called Hondros. And uh, in making war very personal, in getting very close to subjects, I can't help but think of an image he took of a soldier in Liberia who appears to be jumping for joy that he's hit his target uh, Chris also showed truckloads of child soldiers, for instance. In making the film, did you learn anything about how he was able to get so close? Were there tricks of the
7: trade, if you will, that allowed him to capture these kinds of images? Uh, uh, I think one of the things we wanted to emphasize was that he didn't take unnecessary risks. There was a, there was a moment when the photo that you're... you're Referring to where it's almost World War II like, you know, it's a bridge, it's contested, there's one fighting, one group fighting on one side, another group fighting on the other, and they're each just sort of like running into the maw. And they invited Chris to follow along and said, you know, if you want some good pictures, it's on the bridge. And that was where the light bulb went off for him and said, you know, if I'm going to create a, an image that is going to have an impact, it is going to be amidst these soldiers fighting. You know, as Chris would say, it's just a matter of you need to be where the action is happening in order to get those images.
0: Chris made a deep connection with that soldier, which you learn about in this film, Hondros. Uh, To wrap up, uh, you you got some help, I understand, from two very famous names in making this film, Jake Gyllenhaal and Jamie Lee Curtis. What was their
7: involvement? Well, first of all, the involvement comes from again Chris Andros. I, I owe it all to him because if it weren 't for the humanity that he displayed in the work that he did, uh, it wouldn't have caught jamie Lee Curtis's eye. She was impacted by the photo we were discussing earlier the, of the little Iraqi girl who lost her parents at the checkpoint, and as we were you know embarking on our uh, our own search for this little girl, we learned that Jamie Lee Curtis had reached out because of, of the impact that the that the photo had on her she's also a photographer herself and she just really wanted she's been our mentor and our our assistant you know kind of throughout this entire this entire project and jake gyllenhaal is her godson who um saw some early scenes of the film and wanted to get involved with his production company thanks so much it's it's a gripping production i appreciate it it's my pleasure thank you so much for having us
0: Greg Campbell of Denver directed Hondros about his friend, the late photojournalist Chris Hondros. He died covering the war in Libya in 2011. The film is now available on iTunes, Amazon and Xbox. Proof now, there are second chances. Tomorrow night, Fort Collins band The Patty Fiasco gets an opportunity that passed them by a year ago. They'd booked a career-changing gig, opening for one of the biggest rock acts in history. Bon Jovi was scheduled to play in Denver last April, but the band had to cancel due to unforeseen circumstances. This was especially bad news for the Patty fiasco, who'd won a contest to open for the 80s icons. Founding member Dee Tyler explained it was a shot through the heart to only make it halfway there. But if you keep the faith and have something to believe in, you might end up getting your blaze of glory. Fortunately for the local Americana band, Bon Jovi is finally coming to Denver and wants to make good on the original invitation. And so ahead of tomorrow night's show at the Pepsi Center, here's the Patty Fiasco with small town lights.
1: There I am, 17. Shaking.
0: fiasco with small town lights. The Fort Collins Band opens for Bon Jovi tomorrow night at the Pepsi Center. This is Colorado Matters.